0: Boat Trader is America's largest boating marketplace with over 100,000 boats to choose from. We offer simple, comprehensive solutions for those looking to sell, find, and finance new or used boats. Visit BoatTrader.com to get started
1: mobile hunters are you looking to make the move to saddle hunting this year or maybe you just want to add a few new pieces of gear or upgrade your current saddle gear if that's the case then head over to tetherednation.com where they've got all mobile hunters covered whether you're new to saddle hunting or an old timer tethered is your one stop saddle shop from saddles to ropes sticks ascenders whatever it is you need they have you covered I've personally been using their gear for the past three seasons now my base setup consists of the phantom saddle and the predator platform and if you're wondering why i've chosen to use their gear above all else here's the cliff notes they're innovative and pushing the mobile hunting forward overall they cut no corners and prioritize the safety and performance of their gear they care about the community that they've created and their gear allows me to hunt free and above all else i like to support good people doing good work if you're interested in upping your mobile hunting game then head to tetherednation.com this podcast is brought to you by Skull Brew Coffee Company. Skull Brew Coffee roasts premium single origin coffee guaranteed to deliver the freshest coffee directly to your doorstep. The kicker they're 2% for conservation certified and donate 10% of their proceeds back to organizations who support the interests of our hunting community. So go to skullbrewcoffee.com and pick up one of their three killer roasts and fuel your hunt and fill more tags with Skull Brew Coffee. Welcome to the Truth from the Deer Hunting Podcast, brought to you by Skull Brew Coffee Company. I'm your host Clint Campbell, and you're listening to episode number 220. Today, I'm joined by accomplished Adirondack Mountain and DIY travel hunter Todd Mead. So, stay tuned. What is up, everyone? Happy Wednesday to you. Hope you are doing well. Hope you are feeling fine. It's crazy to think that uh, I think it's this week that we actually spring the clocks forward. So I've been noticing, man, the days are just getting a little bit longer. Um, and they know officially get a lot longer uh, this week once we once we push the clocks forward, which is always kind of a nice uh a nice milestone to hit, um, that allows you to get outside, do some things outside, maybe after work. It's, it's, I love the fall. Obviously it's my favorite time of year and, in through the winter, especially during hunting season. Um, and so I don't mind those short days, so to speak, uh, when I'm able to be, you know, outside, you know, chasing, chasing deer with a bow. But as soon as that stops, man, I got to tell you, <laughs> I look forward to when the days get a little longer just cause it feels like there's so much I want to get done outside that I just don't have the time to do given, you know, uh, when I get up to, to work out before work, it's, it's dark when I get done with work, it's dark. Uh, so that leaves very little time to do things outside. So I'm always appreciative when I get just a little bit more of that daylight. And it also, you know, it means you can do a little bit more bow shooting outside, weather permitting, right? You have a little bit more daylight. So hopefully you can do some of those things, uh, maybe even steal a, a scout or two, um, after work hit the timber that's always that's always a possibility too which is nice you know maybe if there's somewhere where you need to kind of make a quick run through you can do it in the couple hours of daylight you have after you after you get out of work and that was kind of what not that i was doing it after work but that was kind of what i did this past week and i finally made another attempt to try to get out and do a little bit of scouting this one area i had had been wanting to look at and uh it's really weird when you think of snow and snowfall and stuff like that in your general area it's like i look out my window and i'm like oh, okay the, the snow's melting off pretty good but literally i i travel a half hour in one direction you know from my place to you know where i wanted to scout and it's like they had a completely different snowfall scenario like it's not melted off really at all um you know i mean it certainly had melted since the since the initial snowfall that we got but not not anywhere near enough to actually be able to do any legitimate scouting or, uh, make it even somewhat enjoyable. Um, so me and the pooch went out and did a few miles and, uh, kind of, had kind of met the same fate that we met the the last time we tried to go out, which was just, there was a pile of snow and, uh, it was hard, hard trekking. And, uh, so we, we got to the area that we wanted to get to the clear cut that I wanted to get to, to check out. And there just, well, there wasn't a whole lot of sign there. There wasn't a whole lot to be found. And in fact, I kind of bamboozled myself to be be quite honest because whenever I found it last year, I just kind of stumbled onto it. Um, and when I looked on the map and I kind of started checking things out, like the clear cut looked pretty big. And and in fact, it is. But the place that I had seen and that I stumbled onto that was fresh was actually just it was the front of an adjacent to an older cut that was behind it. So when I look at it on the map, it looks like this sizable clear cut in what I had thought because I'd never been there before that I thought it had all just been cut. But the reality was, was that the fresh cut was actually just a really small portion of it. And I made my way through that pretty quick. And then on the back side of it was a cut that was probably, mm. I don't know, probably anywhere 10 years old, maybe seven to 10 years old i adventure, I guess probably closer to 10, um, which is very similar for a lot of cuts that I had walked through on that piece and other areas. They're all, they were all cut probably around the same, around the same time. Cause it was just super high, stem count, but not the type that's huntable and not the type that's really providing any uh sustenance for deer. Um, so you know, so to speak. So there wasn't like it wasn't all briary and nasty. It was just a bunch of really young, really young trees that were uh kind of packed in tightly tightly together. So I did find a few rubs here and there. Nothing to really write home about. There was still snow, obviously, and I didn't even really see um many tracks in and around that in and around that general area. So um, so we kind of made our, our way quickly through the, what I thought would be the kind of the, the prime stuff. And then we, then we looped back out and that was kind of it. I did have plans to hit two other pieces, uh, that were close to there. Um, but just with the amount of snow that was on the ground, I felt that it was probably in in my better interest to, uh, make my way back home and take care of a few items that were on the, uh, on the honeydew list and get that, uh, get that squashed that way. As the, as the weather turns to warm this next week. Uh, and The snow melts off that I'll actually be free and clear in these upcoming weekends to get out and really kind of put the pedal to the metal because I'm probably a month behind like a lot of you probably are that that have been snowed in for the past uh, for the past couple weeks as well. But uh, with that, two things I want to pass along to you guys before we jump into today's podcast. One, pass along a discount to uh, for some Skull Brew Coffee. You can head over to skullbrewcoffee.com. dot com. Use the promo code truth at checkout and that will get you a discount on every product um, that is uh, that is on the site. Uh, definitely want to check out the uh, travel pour over packets. Um, those are killer for whenever you're going out scouting. If you're going away for a weekend to scout, take some killer coffee with you. It's not uh, it's not instant coffee. It's actually legit coffee made for pour over and for travel. So check that out. And then the other one is passing along a discount to you all for Truth from the Stand merch. You can head to the website truthfromthestand.com. Go to the merch tab. And then click on, you know, whatever item you're interested to in. have sweatshirts, coffee mugs, T-shirts, uh, a bunch of stuff there. If you use the promo code TFTS21 uh, at checkout, that will save you some cash, too. So with that, have a cool show for you today. Have Todd Mead on. Todd is from New York. Uh, he hails from uh, around the area of the Adirondacks. He grew up and cut his teeth hunting the the, the big woods of, of the Adirondacks. And I think a lot of times when we talk big woods or we think about big woods, you know, um, you know, a lot of times it might just be several thousands or tens of thousands of acres, even, you know, in, in kind of unbroken uh timber with, you know, very little structure and, and, and low deer density, which are which are all true. But whenever uh Todd talks about hunting the big woods of the Adirondacks, we're talking, you know, an area that is just Uh, a wilderness area, I guess is probably the best way to say it. It's super vast, a lots of, lots of different type of habitat, lots of different type of terrain, super low deer density. And it's one of those places, you know, I would kind of liken it to, you know, hunting out West um, where you just have like these millions of acres of unbroken timber um, that you're able to kind of traipse about. Um, That can be extremely challenging to hunt, especially when you're talking about trying to hunt a mature whitetail. And Todd has proven himself over and over again with a long line of success in in hunting the big woods uh, of, of the Adirondacks and has plenty of mounts to mounts to show for it. So I was super excited to, to talk to him. Not only that, but he also um, is a an, an accomplished DIY kind of travel bow hunter, everything from you know elk to, to whitetails and so forth. But what we kind of focus in more specifically is, is obviously the whitetail part of the conversation. So not only did he you know, find success in some really hard areas to hunt in his home state in, in and around the Adirondack Mountains, um, but he also took those learnings and then started kind of exploring and branching out and seeing how he could kind of up his game and use the things he knows from hunting the big woods and how they would see how they would translate to some of these other Midwestern states. Um, and he he wrote a book. And I mentioned it in the podcast that I had been reading and he talks a lot about hunting the Adirondacks and kind of it's it's uh, how he kind of took those learnings and and, and extrapolated them out to hunting the Midwest. And one thing that I thought was interesting, he mentioned in the book, was that, you know, the Adirondacks certainly are hard to hunt. The big Woods are certainly hard to hunt. And people kind of make the um, I guess the jump or the assumption that when you hunt the Midwest and some of these other areas. Uh, where you have more structure, higher deer densities, that it's easier um, on public lands or whatever the case is. And I like the way he kind of frames it because I think yeah, you're going to see more deer, and I would agree with that. And the, you know, but what he says, I think that really rings true is that no matter where you're hunting a mature whitetail, he a whitetail buck, he always has the upper hand. He's always going to you know have the opportunity to best you um, because he lives in that environment twenty four seven. And so that was one of the things I thought was interesting that he learned as he started kind of really kind of branching out and traveling to these different places. He went from a place that was extremely hard to hunt to places that a lot of people would consider to be easier to kill a mature deer. Um, but whenever you're chasing a mature deer, what he had found is that they are equal to the task no matter what state you're you're hunting in. So with Todd, I have a two-part series. This is a two-part series because we spent a fair amount of time together, and the the session was really long, so I'm cutting this into two parts Um, this first part, you know, we talk a lot about Todd's kind of, uh, how he got introduced to hunting and then we start into the big woods conversation and then part two will be forthcoming. So with that, I want to thank you all for listening. All right, folks. Welcome back to another episode of the Truth from the Stand Deer Hunting Podcast. And today, I feel like we almost even had a podcast in our pre-record, just our, our, our catch-up. I could talk to this guy for for forever, and that's what we're going to plan to do here. Um, as you guys listening know, I love all things DIY, hunting, bow hunting. Love all things travel hunting. And I'm always kind of seeking out those people that I can learn from, um, you know, and, and just to kind of explore the, the finer points of, of, of bow hunting and, and, and travel hunting. And it was actually turned on to the gentleman that I have on the phone with me now, uh, by, uh, a fellow who listens to this podcast, his name's uh, Jay Jackson. So Jay, I want to give you a shout out and say, thank you for connecting me to, uh, to Mr. Todd Mead of, uh of the great state of new york he is a a mountain hunter by by trade maybe uh, in the adirondacks but has been traveling for years um has written a couple books one of which i have in my hand right now that i just um that i just wrapped up reading called pursuing public land bucks so it's a a pleasure to have you on todd and uh looking forward to chatting man
2: yeah thanks for having me clint and uh i don't know hopefully we can make jay uh, look intelligent so uh i'm not sure <laughs> Not sure I know everything that he thinks I do, but uh, I'll give it a whirl. Hey, man, that's like, hey, it, it,
1: it, sometimes it just it, it pays to be able to uh, um, uh, I'm trying to figure out how to how to say it It, it pays to be able to uh, provide the illusion. Sometimes fake it till you make it. Maybe might be one way to say it. Right.
2: Yeah, there you go. Yeah. I, I guess I've been somewhat successful and uh, from afar, it looks impressive. But, you know, as you live day to day, like it just become, becomes becomes kind of like a norm. Yeah. And, uh, I think a lot of things I just take for granted that I've learned over the years and, uh, you know, uh, what was once really hard for me doesn't seem as hard anymore.
1: Right. Yeah, no, I, I, I totally get that. And I'm not, you know, I've not been doing the travel hunting and, and, and the things that, that you've done to, to, to the extent that you have for the amount of years, um, you have a, a, a ton of experiences Why I'm looking forward to, to, to chatting with you. Um, but you know, even in my, you know, more, uh, brief kind of approach or, 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 brief run with the travel hunting and the DIY kind of hunting, um, I definitely noticed like those moments where, you know, the light bulb kind of goes off and, you know, you start to pick certain things up and I've even noticed now, like, you know, for example, someone might ask you a question and it's like, it might be something that I don't even think about whenever I'm scouting or when I'm hunting, but it's, it's computing. And it's interesting because some people like to them, that's like a big nugget. Like that's the missing piece for them to like make the next evolution. But for someone who's been doing it a long time, it just becomes kind of how you do it. You know what I mean? It just becomes part of your
2: process. Does that make sense? Yeah, it makes a lot of sense, but I feel like I'm walking around in the dark. So (laughs) you have have light bulbs. I wander around in the dark, but uh, find a way to figure it out.
1: Right. Yeah. Well, my, my bulbs are dim, so let's not, let's not go too far here, but uh, Hey, before we get started, man, I always like to just start off with, you know, letting people know, you know, where you're from and what you do for a living. So people get a little bit of a sense about, about who you are.
2: Sure. I'm from upstate New York and I live on the southeastern edge of the Adirondack park. And a lot of people are familiar with the area because we have a tourist trap here. It's called Lake George. Mm Hmm. A 32 mile long lake, and it's uh, kind of set down in a valley between two mountain ranges. Um, other people who are familiar with thoroughbred horse racing might know it because I live just north of Saratoga Springs, where they have uh, horse racing throughout August and in, uh, into a little bit into September. So they say August, it's the place to be. Um, I was born and raised here. I went off to college for a while and like down near Pennsylvania on the border of New York, a little bit north of it in a place called Oneonta. Mm-hmm. And the reason I went to college there is because my father always took me bow hunting there when I was a kid. So I figured, well, I can go to school there. I can take English because I like English and uh, I'll major in that. And then I'll also be in an area where I can bow hunt. So uh, I decided to go to college there. And when I... When I finally sent in the paperwork, my mother looked at me and said, you're not going there to hunt, are you? I said, (laughs) definitely not, mom. And uh, like, I mean, it's bad to say, but that's really why I went there because I knew I would have some type of comfort away from home and I'd be in an environment that I was used to, even though I was away from home. And uh, so that's, I ended up there and I went to school. I completed my four years on time. And then I came home and I went to work for a company called Tribune Media Services. It was based out of Chicago and they had an office unit in my hometown. So I went to work there as an editor and I worked along there for a while and they were expanding into international markets and they asked if anybody had any, uh, Background in foreign language, and throughout college, I had taken foreign language because it was easy for me and I figured I could get good grades by taking foreign language because it was so easy for me <laughs> and In the process, I made a lot of people mad because I took advanced French classes in college, and a lot of the people were French majors, and they couldn't understand how I could do it so easily. <laughs> So the company was expanding into the international market and they wanted uh, like French translators. Mm -hmm. So I worked as a French translator for 18 years for the company. Wow. Uh, So then everything kind of history kind of goes in a circle. Mm -hmm. And uh, the longtime copy editor of the business decided that she was going to retire. And my background is in English. So I became the head copy editor for the company and I've been with the company for, uh, I think this year will be 30 years. Wow. So I went there out of college. The, I graduated in May, started in June and I've been there ever since. Wow. And, and yeah. I'm, I, think I'm, I think I'm 51. <laughs>
1: <Right>. <laughs> man, that's a great story, man. Like you don't hear that very often people, you know, finding up, find, in a, find in a place where they're you know, that they're comfortable, that they like. Cause I mean, the one thing for sure, it's like, if you've been there for that long, it's like, they must be treating people pretty well, which is, which is a good thing to find this day and age.
2: Well, it, it, I won't get into it, but I work for like basically what you call corporate America. Mm -hmm. And it, I would not recommend that anybody work in corporate America. Um, reason I've stayed there is because it's close to home. I have a lot, I've earned a lot of vacation time. I don't make a lot of money. I'll never make a lot of money, but I make enough to do the things that I want to do. Mm-hmm. And I have a flexible schedule that allows me to pursue the hobbies that I'm the most interested in.
1: Right. Yeah. Man, there's, it, it, you can't put a price on being uh, happy and having, a, having an appropriate work-life balance. You know, so exactly. You know, I work in a pretty demanding industry. Um, you know, and so at times it is a struggle for, um, for work-life balance. You know, and so that's one of those things where it's like I'm always having to try to keep an eye on, um, you know. So I always can I always applaud those who are able to make, um, those choices. You know, mindfully and set themselves up to have that, uh, you know, to live the life that they want to. Man, because I think that's what you well, know to, people are seeking. To be me. honest,
2: I originally I went to college to be a teacher. And, uh, when, when I went to be a teacher, I did a little bit of, uh, I sat in classes and stuff
0: mm-hmm. and I
2: decided right then I told my father, I said, I don't want to be a teacher because I want to be a hunter mm-hmm. and I'm only going to be able to hunt on the weekends and I'm not going to have any time off during hunting season. I want to do something different. Yeah. So kind of why I stay where I am because it's allowed me to do what I have the most passion about.
1: Yeah. That's awesome. Well, speaking of hunting, like how did you you know, how did you get started hunting? I mean, it sounds like this, this was something that was a a family affair and you started, started relatively early.
2: Uh, yeah, I, well, my my brother's a little bit older. He's two years older and he was going to be the hunter in the family. And I was going to be the fisherman Oh, (laughs) on our way home one night. Like I live, I live right on the edge of the mountains and there are crop fields and stuff around us. And one day on the way home, it was after dark and a raccoon ran across the road in front of us and it went up into the cornfield beside the house. And my father said, come on, let's go get that, you know, because you could you could shoot the coons and then, you know, skin them out and sell the pelts. So uh, we ran over next door and uh, we we treed the coon out of the cornfield and my father shot it and I cried and cried and cried. <laughs> so, I decided I'm not gonna hunt. I just I couldn't handle it. I didn't like killing things and I just it really bothered me. So uh my brother is a little bit older than me, he hunted and stuff, but I never really came into it until I was about 14 years old. And I mean I was young when that the raccoon incident happened. But as I got older, I learned, you know, the value of life and death and stuff like that. And then I I just became more in touch with nature and uh I don't find any satisfaction in what you would say, killing something, because killing something bothers me. Yeah. But at the same time, I, I know it's a part of hunting and I know that it's the end result of you putting all your work together and, and you accomplished a goal and it's all the, the, you know, it's the ultimate, you know, I don't know what you would call it, success in hunting
0: mm-hmm.
2: and just became, I think that's why I became what I am now. And, uh, that's why I pursue specific animals most of the time hmm. because I To play on their terms and i want to see if i can outsmart them
1: yeah that's interesting because i i'm still i mean i started hunting you know super early it was um you know pennsylvania heritage right it's you know kind of the birthright you know you turn 12 when you're a boy in pennsylvania you're going out with your dad your uncles and stuff like that on the first day of deer season and that's just kind of the the way it is i of course started a little earlier going out with my dad you know maybe hunting squirrels and tagging along for deer hunts and and stuff like that. But I'm the same way as you, man, where you know, killing something's a heavy thing. You know, and even though, you know, you've been hunting for a lot of years, I've been hunting for a bunch of years. It's it doesn't make it um any easier or any less heavy when it when it happens. Um and I just think that that's a normal human kind of reaction in my opinion. You know, I I would assume, I guess maybe I might be naive, but I assume a lot of people feel that way. I don't know what do, what do you think?
2: Yeah, unfortunately, um I would almost say it's 50, 50. There are a lot of killers and there are a lot of hunters and the difference between killers and hunters is big in my eyes. Mm-hmm. I know a lot of people that just go to kill things. And, uh, that's just not, that's not the way I was brought up. And I don't, you know, I just don't respect people like that mm-hmm. because you, you should feel a part of it when you take an animal's life. And, uh, it's always bothered me. And, uh, but at the same time it hasn't bothered me enough to stop. I mean, because I know it's a part of it.
1: Right. Yeah. But I think
2: a so. uh, thrill from the kill and uh, you know, and I, I do get a thrill from the kill, but it's not. So I have to go kill again.
1: Right. Right. Yeah. It's, you know, it's um, I'm trying to think, there was a really good quote that I saw from someone that kind of really summed it up for me. It was, it was, and I'm going to butcher it here, but I'll kind of give what the gist of it was it was something along the lines of, of not having, not feeling remorse necessarily after, after killing an animal, a deer or whatever it is, because I know who I am and I know what role I play in it, but it doesn't mean that it affects you any, any less deeply, you know what I mean? Like, so you're not remorseful necessarily because you, you know what the intent is, but it doesn't mean that there's not a feeling that's behind it. Right. And that to me really kind of summed it up really, really well Cause that's exactly how I feel, you know what I mean? After it happens, it's like, there's a moment of, um, weight that happens where it's like, I recognize I, you know, did something that's not able to be undone. Right. Which is pretty, pretty significant. Um, but I don't feel badly for it, um, uh, because I know what I am and what my intent was, but I can still recognize yeah. I can still recognize that moment for what it is, you know? And I think that that might be what we're both kind of getting at. Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. So man, how was, uh, how was your year this year? You know, did you have a, have a good season overall?
2: Yeah. I mean, to be honest, like every season for me is good because if I can hunt, it's good. I mean, I don't, <laughs> I don't base it on whether I killed something or not. Um,
0: right. so
2: i tell you every season is good. I mean, I was fortunate enough. I went, I went to three States this year and I killed deer in two, in two of them. <laughs> so um, yeah, it was, it was pretty good. Uh, the weather wasn't the best, but I, you know, I made the most of it. Mm-hmm. My father was really sick this year and, uh, it, it caused me to have a different mental approach, um, because I tried to make it maybe easier for him and, uh, and I didn't mind that at all. Mm-hmm. And I learned a lot of things in the process of doing that.
1: Right. What, uh, what states did you head to this year?
2: I hunted in Illinois. I hunted in Colorado and I hunted in New York.
1: Okay. Illinois Colorado New York. Nice. And uh, how was the, how was the Illinois trip?
2: Illinois trip was good. It was uh, 80 degrees for oh. the, I think I was there too. I don't know. Was I there a week, week and a half maybe. And it was 80 degrees, but uh, there were four of us and we killed three deer and, my dad was struggling this year and he uh he wounded i think one and missed one
0: Mm, yeah
1: man that's uh i'm I'm assuming you were probably out in illinois sometime around the first part of november with all that heat
2: uh yeah (laughs) yeah yeah
1: i was (laughs) i was in missouri about the about the same time and it was you know we had some decent action i was kind of in the similar similar boat as your dad unfortunately i ended up hunting a couple different pieces of public over the course of you know, I guess seven days, and um, I ended up, I, I guess I had three really good encounters and ended up hitting one and losing it on the very last, on the very last day, um, which was a bummer. But in a you know, you do it long enough, you're it's, it's gonna happen, so it's just one of those things, yeah, no where, doubt, you know, oh. yeah, yeah, it's part of it. Doesn't make it any easier, you know, you don't like it, but you know, no, it, it doesn't, but uh. So, man, I want to talk to you. I want to start first with, you know, the area that you hunt in 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 New York, in in the, in the Adirondack Mountains, just because, you know, I hunt some areas that are that are big woods, you know, and maybe I wouldn't refer to them as mountains. But, you know, really large tracts of land that are unbroken by agriculture and low structure. Right. Like not a lot of structure, not a lot of ag fields and things like that. Um not a you know ton of destination food source type places or or anything like that um I just want get i guess just describe for me a little bit about the area that you're hunting in 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 New York uh
2: well, that's hard because I hunt so many different places and no two places are alike. Mm-hmm. Um, I do all of my hunting in what they call the Adirondack park,
0: mm-hmm.
2: and the Adirondack park is uh I think it's six and a half million acres. Man. And yeah, most, most people think they're in a big, big patch when they're on 4,000 acres. Right. Um, and of that acreage, half of it is public land. So the Adirondacks are considered forever wild. Um, and that was done by Teddy Roosevelt. Mm-hmm. And the reason he made it forever wild is because back in the day, they were logging the heck out of it. And he thought that the entire area would be decimated by logging. So he wanted to save the land for the habitat, Mm -hmm. you know, so it would make better habitat. And in the process, what they did is they made it so you can't really do anything on public land except for hunt, fish, you know, camp a little bit. But there really isn't any food in most parts of the park for deer besides browse mm-hmm. because uh, elevations elevations in most parts of it it's too high to grow oak trees so you have no mass crops as far as acorns and there are a lot of beech trees but beech usually doesn't produce very often it might produce every three to four years a good crop of it and then when the beech does produce there's usually so much of it that the deer don't have to move at all to actually uh you know, they don't have to move. They can lay down and they can eat and they can stay there and never move too far. And with land that big, it's hard to find deer. Like you can, you can walk for miles and never even locate deer. Um, we have a lot of different, like uh, steep mountains. We have what they call the, uh, the high peaks region, which is where all the biggest mountains in New York are. And uh, then as you get into the central Adirondacks, it's, you know, maybe lower peaks, uh, you know, rivers streams ponds um swamps and every few years we'll probably have somebody that gets lost and and dies they don't come out of the woods you know yeah it it can be intimidating uh the
0: 1911 is one of the most iconic firearms in history designed by john browning the 1911 was the standard issue sidearm of the u.s military from 1911 to 1985 while colt produced the original almost every major firearm company has produced its own version it's wildly revered for its reliability, crisp trigger, and is still a favorite for all types of shooters. Whether you're looking to buy or build a 1911 and just about everything for guns, log on to MidwayUSA.com.
2: It, it's not some place that you just want to walk in with your OnX map on your phone and, you know, be comfortable with it. You really need to know how to read a map and a compass. And I was brought up from a young age being able to do that.
1: Right. Yeah, you get into that that big a country, and you lose service, or your phone dies, or the app goes on the fritz, or something like that. You're in you're in a world of hurt in that in that situation. Yeah, and there's no a doubt. there's no walking a couple miles in one direction. You'll eventually hit a road out out in those types of situations. It, I, I would liken it to being out west, you know, Montana, Colorado,
2: wherever yeah. one of those big. See, it, it's weird. Like I can go to Colorado, and I don't need anything out there um, because the landmarks are so. significant yeah 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 and but like where i live there are really the area where i hunt you can't really get high enough to see anything that that you can say oh okay because as soon as you go off elevation you can no longer see it right well most people do when they're lost no matter where they're lost they walk in a circle yeah Uh, so it's just kind of you know being a good woodsman is part of being a good hunter in the in the area that i come from
1: Yeah. And that's one thing, you know, it's, uh, it's something, uh, an art form that maybe has been, you know, lost a little bit. And I try to, as much as I possibly can, you know, have, have fellows like yourself on, or, um, you know, there was a guy named Todd Havel. I don't know if you know Todd. He, He, he's, uh, he does a lot of tracking. He's from, I believe, Michigan. Um, I love the conversation I had with him because he's really relies on woodsmanship a hundred percent, you know, and I love talking to guys that that's still how they hunt because it's somewhat of a lost art. And the funny thing is, is the more that I've paid attention to those aspects, uh, not coincidentally, (laughs) I started Mm -hmm. having more success and finding myself having like better encounters or being in the, you know, in, in the good stuff more often than not essentially. Um, you know, sorry, go ahead.
2: Yeah. When you, uh, I think too, nowadays too many people rely on technology. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of my success comes from the fact that my father brought me up teaching me how to get around in the woods and showing me like, like people have a tendency to go the same way that deer do. Mm -hmm. And if I see an easy way to get like through a, you know, a crack in a mountain, that's the way I'm going to go. And And most, a lot of people don't even know what a saddle is. Like, that's what a saddle is. You're going to take the way through the mountain. So uh, almost all the time, if you're, you know, searching through the woods for deer signs, stuff like that, wherever the terrain brings you, it's probably going to bring deer also. So it's just something that you always got to kind of keep in the back of your head. Like I'm going this way for a reason. So deer probably will go this way for a reason also.
1: Right. Right. And then it's asking that question why it's like, well, if they're using this and you start seeing sign, right. It's like, then, well, why am I starting to see sign here when I hadn't seen it in other places? Right. It's like, is it, am I getting close to food? Yeah. Am I getting well, close to bed? Am I getting,
2: it's, it's even deeper than that. It's like, that's what too many people I think, think that it's like, ah, oh, food, bed, all that stuff. Mm-hmm. But in reality, it's, uh, in bigger woods, there are a lot of what they call dead zones. And you can go, you know, a couple miles and not cut a track. And it's just because deer just don't live in that part of the woods. And it it doesn't have anything to do with food or anything like that.
1: Mm
2: -hmm. It's just maybe that the does just don't hang out in that area that time of year when you're going through there. So there's no sign in there. Right. Um, Other time of year, you might go through there and that'll be the place to be like. More so than any place else I've ever hunted, uh, the hunting changes during the season more in the Adirondacks. And it's kind of because of, you know, it changes during snow. It changes during heavy leaf cover. It changes when the leaves are coming off and it's never really the same. That's why I have a tendency to scout almost every day as I hunt. And it's just, you know, I go to wherever I need to go. Like I don't get stuck in a place.
1: Right. Yeah. That was one of the interesting things as I was, I was, uh, I was, uh reading your book um, you know, I think you and I traded, uh, some messages back and forth and I, and it was really kind of hitting home for me because, you know, how you approach things is, you know, as I've evolved or continue to evolve or more is more and more how I, you know, approach things. So it was interesting, you know, how, you know, how mobile you are, because I, it's, it's funny because people think that mobile is this new, this newfangled thing, but the, <laughs> the more you, the more you talk to guys that have been in it for a long time, man, you know, and have been successful it's like they were mobile before mobile was cool (laughs) you know what I mean because that was what I was I was picking up when I was while I was reading your stuff I was like this guy was hunting mobile and getting down and moving and wasn't burning a spot just because he thought or he had previously found success in a spot like if it wasn't hitting and the sign wasn't there like he was burning boot leather figuring out where he needed to be and does that sound about right?
2: Yeah, that's right. I mean, uh, why why waste your time in an area that the deer aren't there? I mean, it's it's funny. You'll see every year where certain individuals, they'll kill like giant deer, and then you might not ever hear from the person again, mm-hmm. and because they went someplace, they killed the deer there, and then they just always go back there because they expect the same thing to happen. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, it's uh, getting married to a spot can be detrimental to someone's growth and success. <laughs> Is, uh, I, I
2: mean, don't get me wrong. I'm guilty of it. Uh, sure. I have certain places where I know I can go back. Like some places I know absolutely for sure I can go back there and I'll kill a deer. and I'll, I'll hunt those places. Um, but I, I don't mind searching around other places.
1: Yeah, for sure. Yeah. There's a couple places like that that I'll uh, I don't know how to say it. Like, I'll check in on maybe is a way to, is a way to put it, you know, and see if, you know, cause you know, year over year, and I definitely want to talk part, you know, maybe this would be the the next thing we kind of discuss, you know, in certain areas, like you can find year over year patterns, if you've run some trail cameras and stuff like that, or you've hunted it often enough that you started to see things like scrapes open up at a certain time or whatever the, whatever the case is. And so you start to learn at those moments, you know, during those time periods that, that spot is going to turn on or be a lucrative spot potentially. Right. And so it's worth kind of passing through, but if it's not happening there, then you don't sit it out thinking Mm -hmm. that it's going to. Right. And so I I know as I was reading through your book, like you started talking a little bit about that, uh, that kind of approach of, of seeing, you know, I don't annual data maybe is one way to say it, but that you started noticing like annual trends and like when things would kind of turn on or, you know, or turn off or whenever you needed to be in a certain area, kind of what you were talking about where it's like deer and where you're at are so transient. They'll be in one spot for two weeks and then they may not be there again until the next year for those same two weeks. So can you talk to me a little bit about how you kind of, how you, how do you kind of navigate through that?
2: sure like i mean i i killed a lot of deer before there was any technology but when technology started becoming more relevant in the deer hunting world i decided to try it out and see what i could learn mm-hmm. so uh, i the first year i wanted a trail camera my father bought me a trail camera so i'm like oh, i'll try this and then i got some pictures of deer i'm like oh this is cool so as time goes by i used them a little bit not a whole lot and then uh the more and more that I started hunting, I'm like, well, I'll just buy cheap trail cameras. So just as an example, this year between my friend Brian and myself across all of the Adirondacks, you know, that 6 million acres or whatever,
0: mm-hmm.
2: I think between the two of us, we had 65 cameras in the woods. Phew. Nice. So, and and this isn't for this year. Mm-hmm. It's for next year or the year after. Like some places I've had a camera in there for two to three years and I haven't hunted there yet. I'm just collecting data. Mm -hmm. And uh, what I have learned in a couple of the places that I hunt, I can tell you exactly when you need to be there in a three day stretch. And if you go there, you're probably going to fill your tag. Right. And uh, it takes a lot of hard work to do that. And the thing is, you don't want to chase trail cameras during hunting season. You just want to go put them out before the season and collect them at the end of the season. Right. And then areas that I hunt the most, I really don't have a lot of trail cameras in there. Maybe one just kind of to see what's going on here and there. Right. Um, because I feel like some areas I have figured out and other areas I'm trying to figure out. Um, like this year, my buddy Adam and I, we put cameras in the same area. And this area is really hard to get to. I mean, it's it's an area I know I'll never see another person because it's just too difficult to get to. Right. So the end of the year, I went in there to pull my camera. And uh, then I pulled one of Adams or two of Adams. I didn't know where the other ones were. And then we went through all the data on there. And when we looked at it, we realized between Halloween In the last weekend of our season, there were never more than three days in a row that a big buck wasn't in there in the daylight. Hmm. And the reason they weren't in there is because the area is so hard to get to. It had absolutely no pressure. Hmm. And, you know, of course, there were other things that led to it, but that was one of the big ones. And for the Adirondacks to have, I don't know, I think think Adam had 14 different bucks on one camera. And that, in the Adirondacks, there are, I mean, maybe one to five deer per square mile.
0: Mm
2: -hmm. and so the a lot of these deer are just you know one timers other ones visited the area where the camera was a lot but like going into next year i can i can almost guarantee you that adam and i one of us will kill a deer there a good one
1: yeah it's uh that's very similar to what i've i've seen in the in the big woods is just that that timing of you know there's one particular spot that we that we found that is similar to what you're just kind of describing where There were, uh, there was a huge primary scrape that was in this particular area and there were a couple mature bucks. I'm guessing that their core ranges kind of overlapped because there was no reason that anywhere else on this big piece of public, we would never have multiple big deer kind of at the same, like in the same time period, they might come, like one might be using it during pre-rut and then one might be using it like late rut, you know, but we would never have them generally at the same spot at the same time. This one yep. area, it would start like in September and it would go through like middle of January, you know, and there would be multiple in there and everywhere else we would have cameras. We'd have the same thing what you were talking about, where it's like you would have a three to four day window that was like a terrain, like a couple of terrain features that were coming together that they were using to cruise and you would have, you know, a three to four day window where you were certain they were going to pass through there. And then if, you know, if, if you were lucky, you would have a good scrape, you know, in a licking branch there too, that kind of sweetened the deal a little bit, but you know, same exact same exact thing. I thought I was in the chips this year. I sat at one of those spots this year and uh I told this story previously, but I didn't see the deer I wanted to see um in that spot at all. The weather wasn't wasn't great. This was uh, in Ohio and uh after I had left Missouri and then but and on my the last day as I was walking out I had to leave um like mid midday to to start my drive back home. And uh so I hunted the morning and was walking out had a deer blow whenever I got in my tree and I knew like it couldn't smell me because the th- my thermals were dropping down over the back edge of this ridge. And, uh, and I kind of had the wind lightly in my face and it was super foggy. So I knew she couldn't see me and I had, and I assumed it was a doe and I had been in my tree for like 10 minutes at this point. So it's like, I couldn't figure out why she was blowing. And then I heard a grunt, but I thought I was like, man, there's got, there's someone over there blowing on the grunt tube. You gotta be kidding me. You know, it was like, it's, and I was like, who's going to walk back? Cause it was like, close to two miles, you know, back this like gnarly grown over road and stuff like that. And I was like, there's gotta be kidding. There's so- actually someone back here. And then I heard the grunt move. And so I figured it was probably a deer and I waited, you know, till I don't remember, I think I left around like noon. I had to leave to, to drive back home and uh, I was walking out and where he was grunting from or where that I was grunt was coming from. It was up near where I kind of how I get in and out. And uh, so as I was walking out, I jumped what I presume to be a very large bodied deer by the sound of it, sound it made hitting the ground as it was running as I jumped it out of, out of its bed. So it was probably the deer that I had been planning to see over the course of three days. He just never made his way down to that, that scrape in that, in that funnel. So, so I, I don't know what my lesson was there. Maybe stay all day, <laughs> uh, you know, a nap. Uh, Take a nap. Yeah. Yeah. Call, call, my, call my wife and tell her I'll be a day late, maybe, or tell work I'm going to be, be a day late. But man, I want to ask you, cause the Come thing, out. as I was reading through again, kind of reading through this, this particular book and something you mentioned, you know, just a, a couple minutes ago as getting like you hunt specific deer. And to me, that's challenging in general, right? No matter where you're hunting, if it's farm ground or whatever, to, know a specific deer and kind of go after a particular targeted buck is, is, is tough, but to do it on public land in like these big kind of vast kind of, you know, pieces of public land, man, that's, that's really up in the ante and it's not like you're targeting, you know, year and a half old bucks, like you're targeting mature bucks. So can you talk to me a little bit about how <laughs> You not only find deer in this area that has such low deer density, but you manage to hunt a specific one that is a mature one out of of
2: this entire area. Uh, That's pretty easy because most, it's weird, but like most deer that you get on camera are, I won't say most, but a lot of them are mature deer because Mm -hmm. in the area that I hunt, deer just don't survive the winters. So, I mean, a lot of deer get to maturity but they're not like really, I mean, I killed a six and a half year old deer that had a 95 inch <laughs> Uh That's where a lot of people like get so consumed with the antler size. I see it online all the time. Like I can see people commenting on other people. Why'd you shoot that? I'm like, well, it was a six and a half year old deer. You ever shot one of them. Right. And, uh, people just don't understand the mature deer you know, they always base it on antler size. And, uh, so if I go into an area and I'm like trying to find a specific deer, um, I'll, you know, we have all those cameras out. So usually I'll find it the year before and then I'll be like, okay, I'll go in there the next year. I'll see if he's still in there. And if he's in there, then that's where I'm going to go try to kill him. But with that many cameras, I have a lot of different places to hunt. Mm -hmm. So then, and just kind of wander around and I can go to the different places. Like this year I had one place where I knew there was a big buck and I knew that he would probably open this scrape around Halloween time. Mm-hmm. So I went in there and I found where he was working a little bit. And then I'm like, okay, I should be able to kill him around Halloween time. So, uh, and I had the data. He'd showed up there like two, I don't know, two years in a row on, on and within a couple of days. So, I got out of work um, early, I think it was, I can't remember if it was the 29th or the 30th of October, and uh, it was a Friday, And so whatever that Friday was last year, and I had also found this other deer that was in there, and I had hunted it three days in a row, and I hadn't seen the deer, and the scrape was as big as uh, like a small car hood, (laughs) like I've hunted this area long enough, I know he's coming to that scrape, but the weather's been too bad. So then when the weather broke that Friday morning, I had all the other data from the place farther north. So I, as I was driving up the highway going north, I looked out across Lake George and I'm like, man, I should be over there on that side. I know he's coming here today. And uh, But I'm like, no, I have too much data and this other buck is bigger farther north. So I went farther north. I got up there. I got in a blizzard in the afternoon. I sat there that night. I sat there the next morning and I saw nothing. Didn't see any deer. And Then I still hunted around in the snow to see if I could cut tracks. Nothing. So then I come back to the place down south that I drove by on the way up there, where I knew I should have went. I should have went with my gut because your gut feeling is mm-hmm. always right on statistics, usually. Right. And I had a big eight pointer in that scrape right before dark where I would have been sitting. And uh, and then I had another the same. The day before, I had a 10-pointer in there also. No, it would have been the day after. And he was in the daylight also. Jeez. So man. if I went with my gut and hunted that place, because I, I had hunted there three days in a row, I knew he was showing up on the fourth day because the weather broke. Right. And sure enough, he, uh, two different big bucks showed up there, and then nothing showed up where I had the quote-unquote data. Right. <laughs> it's kind of how it always... Going with your gut is yeah. better than going with your data. So you just you have to be able to determine what do I do? Yeah.
1: Yeah. I want to go back to when you, when you first started kind of laying out the the scenario there, cause you knew that scrape kind of around Halloween was going to be the, 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 the time to kind of be there. And you said you were, you kind of found where he was working, right? It was like a, yeah. a, what you had mentioned. What was it particularly that you had seen or, yeah. you know, like how did you know he was in that area? Was there something that he laid down that was very distinct, yeah. distinctly really? him?
2: yeah early in the year um I mean and there were I found three big rubs and one really big rub, and the really big rub was right on the tree with the licking branch in the car hood scrape okay it was a no doubter like I knew he was in there and I knew he'd been in there regularly already mm-hmm. in the in the coming week, which was going into November like I've hunted that area long enough to know that like it gets really active in there and uh but I just I just made the wrong choice. I mean, plain and simple.
1: Right. Yeah. And that happens more times than not. Yeah.
2: Yeah. And I've always told people like go with your gut and don't overthink it. And I just simply over overthought it.
1: Right. Yeah. That's, that's one thing that it's, it's easy to say and hard to do, you know, at least for me, (laughs) at least for me, it is, you know, it's, um, I've had my best hunts, um, whenever I kind of, I don't want to say fly by the seat of my pants, but I just kind of make reaction decisions. Um, in one way that I, and I don't necessarily advocate for this necessarily. It works. It seems to work better for me. I started kind of more freelance hunting places that I've never scouted before, more so than hunting places that I've scouted. And I've actually been ever (laughs) been able to have more encounters doing that because I'm only reading what I see as opposed to what I've known from like prior information. And it keeps me, and it keeps me honest. Um, and it's funny cause my buddy kind of commented on it. He's like, man, when you go out of state, he's like, you have great encounters. You get on deer. He's like, and often he's like, you'll kill deer. You know, he's like in Pennsylvania. He's like, you almost outthink yourself. You know, he's like, <laughs> you know, and I'm like, you're right to a degree. I was like, cause I yeah, had a particular deer that I played cat and mouse with this year. That was a great deer. And it was just like, when I was there, he wasn't. And when I wasn't, he was like every time yeah, I'd miss him by a day yeah. every single time. You know what I mean, and oh yeah, you know and, and it's just kind of what you were saying, like my gut was telling me like you need to it was a primary scrape, and I knew he would hit it, and he did, and it just whenever I was there, he wasn't, and so my gut was telling me, dude, you need to move like forty, fifty, sixty yards, like not a lot, you just need to make a move and try to get back in his business a little bit more, and I just wouldn't I was reluctant to because I was like, no, he's hitting this, it's just a matter of like waiting him out, I know he's going to. And it never, it never happened. Right. So (laughs) if, if I would have went with my gut, it's like, I may, I may have got an opportunity, you know, at that particular deer, but as it stands, you know, he lives to see another day.
2: Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's my friend, Brian. He, like when he's out of state, like he has all the encounters more than anybody, but like back in state, it's, it doesn't work that way. And it's kind of like he overanalyzes and overthinks. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Well, this year I'm going to, I'm going to throw a little bit more caution to, to the wind. I think actually I did use the snow to my advantage after I talked to you because you were going out in the snow and I was like, all right, I was like, Todd's going out in the snow. I'm hitting the snow too. And you know, it was uh-huh. too deep to get a lot done. But what I did find, cause this piece was relatively new to me. I found exactly how they were kind of working at least in the snow and how they were kind of getting to the place where I had found that big primary scrape. So I figured out what their line of travel. And I was like, man, 40 yard move North in a little bit East and probably puts me in the business. I was like, cause with all the foliage on the, on the trees in, you know, mid early-ish to mid October, I was like, I could, there could be deer walking through here and I'd never see them, you know? Yeah, exactly. And so it was just that little tidbit of information where I'm like, okay, if I do make a move, this is the move that I'll make, you know? So, but, um, I want to ask you, you know, I've noticed, I've noticed this in like certain big wood settings, you know, and so I'm curious to see if, like how this plays in the Adirondacks, but are there particular like terrain features or habitat features or a specific elevation that you've been able to key in on? Like if you went into a new spot that there's particular things you're going to look at, you're like, eh, I know this there's a low deer density and it's, and there's dead zones, but if I'm going to prioritize, it's this terrain, this habitat, or this elevation where I'm going to start. Can you talk to me a little bit about that?
2: Now, if you ask, like, all the, I don't know what, what I would call them, legendary Adirondack hunters, mm-hmm. i say you ask 10 of them, you're probably going to get nine different answers. Right. And it's because everybody has a different hunting style.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: So I'll just tell you what I do, which might be totally opposite from what other people do. Right. Uh, I'm a kind of person who I relate dear to people. Okay so what do you need as a person a deer needs the same thing it needs to eat it needs to drink and it needs cover you know so you you need to eat your breakfast lunch and dinner you know you might be able to skip a couple of them mm-hmm. you need a place to sleep where you're going to be protected from you know people trying to get you the weather all that stuff and then you're going to need a place to drink cuz you have to drink every day or you won't you won't survive so uh so what I do is I try to focus around like water areas because you're going to find everything around water. If you, if you get into like an area that has a bunch of beaver flows and stuff like that, or like small lakes, small ponds, you'll always find a lot of deer sign around them because they have everything that they need there. So when I look for different places in the Adirondacks. I always look for swamps, uh, ponds and rolling Hills. I don't really hunt, I don't, although we have big mountainous terrain and stuff, I don't like to hunt on a lot of it. I will hunt in some of it, but I'm not a fan of hunting on steep stuff. And it's basically, it's not because deer aren't there and it's not because deer don't get killed there. It's just because I don't prefer that. <laughs> I feel like I'm more successful in other areas, Got it. but then if you ask a handful of other guys, they're going to say, go to the highest point you can go on the mountain and then hunt your way down it. Right. And, uh, and see what happens but uh as far as me i'm a swamp edger where fingers run down into the swamp so a lot of the big bucks they'll travel along the edge of the swamps and then there'll be fingers that come down off off the ridges and stuff and uh if there's danger on either side of them they can quickly escape they can go into the swamp because it's thick like nothing's going to be in there and if they have danger from the swamp side they can just run up those fingers um you know, and in, in the areas that we're in the, the, you know, the landscape is so huge that, I mean, it doesn't take long for them to disappear. You'll never see them again.
1: Right. Right. Do you take a similar approach when you go, go out of state? Or are you looking for similar things when you're, when you're traveling?
2: Uh, to be honest, it, this is going to sound really weird, but like when we go out of state, I do a lot of aerial scouting and my friend, Brian and my dad usually go a week before me.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And I do is I do all the aerial scouting and then I supply them with a bunch of maps and places to go to mm-hmm. look at. Mm-hmm. What they do is they spend, they hunt, but they spend, they hunt in the morning and then in the evening and they hunt in all these new places that I've given them to look at. And it really, although I look for the things that I look for in the Adirondacks, it's more of a, just cover as much ground as you can in a certain area and see what you find.
1: Right. Right.
2: Does that make sense?
1: Yeah. No, it totally makes sense. And and I, I kind of follow a, a, a similar approach. You know, I do a, I do a fair amount of online scouting as well. You know, looking at aerial maps and, and stuff like that. Um, before I get there and oftentimes like this year in Missouri, I never set foot on the piece of property until I, you know, or never saw it in person until I hunted it, you know, and that was, and that yeah. was it. Um, which like I'd mentioned previously, it actually is to my benefit. Cause I don't, I don't out, out, uh, out myself, but I do, you know, I do look for similar things, right. It's like, I try to find areas that are, you know, you're probably similar in this way, like water, right. I try to find things that are going to keep people out. Like, so Any anytime I have to cross water <laughs> or climb a Ridge or something like that, that's going <laughs> to keep people from, you know, possibly being there, you know, I'll look, I'll look for those types of things. So it sounds like we have a, a similar approach, but I need to find a buddy that'll go out a week a week ahead of time. That's what I'm talking about.
2: Yeah, well, I, I mean, don't get me wrong. I do my part, too. Oh, sure. But, uh, like, I'm a little better on the computer than they are, mm-hmm. and uh, so it just works out better. But, like, I mean, when I – then I get there, and then I'll do the same thing. Like, we mm-hmm. we just moving, 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 and – uh like what you were just talking about, like go to where the people aren't like recently. I've kind of started avoiding that, Mm -hmm. that with all the big DIY and public land stuff, you find it all over the place now. And that's what people push all the time. Like the deer I killed, I was a hundred yards off the road. I could see cars going by on the road. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So I also look for places that nobody would even imagine sitting because it looks like it sucks so bad.
1: (laughs) Yeah, yeah I, I hear you there. I had a I had a good hunt like that on, on an out of state trip where after I shot the buck, it ran down the side of this ridge. It was a, it was a, it was a crappy climb up. It wasn't a long climb, but it was steep. And it's actually one of those places you were kind of talking about before, which was like year over year, that place is just. If I don't go hunt it, I actually send my buddy Tate. He's a he's the old timer that turned me on to bow hunting. Um, yeah. he'll go, he'll go there, and I'll you know because the first year I went there, we went together. I just found this spot. I killed a buck next day. I put him in the same tree I was in. He killed a buck the next day. And so when I don't go there, he goes there on his own. And every year he sees a couple hammer deer, you know, he sometimes gets a shot. Sometimes, sometimes doesn't, but it's, it's legitimately, if, I mean, it might be two tenths of a mile max from where you park, but it's straight up. And you kind of get to the top of this ridge, and there's just like hammer scrapes laid down, primary scrapes laid down up there. And the buck that I shot there, um, it ran downhill and died like <laughs> probably 30 yards from the log yard landing. And it was maybe a total of like a 70 yard drag to the road to put it in my truck. <laughs> it couldn't have worked out. It could have worked out any better, you know? Um, but, uh, yeah, I love those little overlooked, overlooked spots, man. But the one thing I've started doing a lot more of is actually using water access this year. So using a boat, that's the one thing I have found that still will kind of keep people, keep people out. And you're right. Cause with the DIY stuff, you know, on X and things like that, people are willing to go further um but i have found like using a boat and getting into those kind of little areas does cut down on the traffic pretty significantly do you do any well i know you do I, i've seen some pictures of you with a kayak you do some kayaking in, right <laughs> uh
2: yeah i used a in my i think it was in my second book which no longer is available um i talked about my boat hunting because that's all i did for 20 years maybe oh, hunted nice. out of a and then i'll tell you what no deer is worth dying for right And in the area that we used to hunt out of a boat, uh, we had a boat with a 50 horse motor on it and a wave came over the top of it and sunk the boat in December. Oh, wow. Uh, December in the Adirondacks is not good. Yeah. And after that, I decided I'm going on the water as little as possible. Right. And, uh, you know, I do use a boat. I have used a boat. I still use like a canoe or kayak or whatever, Mm -hmm. but. I can avoid it i will and trust me i can swim well mm-hmm. and i'm not afraid of the water or anything but i just prefer to not you know not have any risk of anything happening
1: right yeah no that's a good that's a good point um because i I will say this was the first year that i've used water access you know and that was actually in pennsylvania a lot of what i did was water access and actually in missouri the one spot was water access only um and, uh, when I'm here in PA by myself, it is a little freaky being out in the middle of a lake, you know, or a big body of water, you know, <laughs> by yourself in a, in a, in a, kayak, you know, you're, you're paddling in in dark and you're paddling out in the dark. And there's, you know, during the day, you know, I might hear some fisher, you know, people fishing around or other people kayaking around or whatever. But, you know, when you come in, when you're coming in and going out, man, there is, there's not a soul around except the stars. And, uh, I mean,
2: don't get me wrong. I've killed some really big deer, uh, you know, using a boat and stuff like that, but I would prefer not to, even mm-hmm. though sometimes it's a little better. And then I, you know, I will use it at that point.
1: All right, folks, that is a wrap for today's show. I'd like to thank all of you for listening. And if you haven't yet, please head over to iTunes and leave us a five star rating. And hell, while you're at it, head over to YouTube and give us a sub there too. I'd be super appreciative if you'd be able to do those two things for me. And before I shut this thing down, I need to give a big shout out to our partners who continue to help us make this podcast possible. Tethered, Exodus Outdoor Gear, Skull Brew Coffee Company, and Maven Optics. And until next time, we'll see y'all.